Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. Uh, My name is Di Cousins and today I'm very excited to be talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book, Massaging Himmler, a poetic biography of Dr. Felix Kirsten. Thanks for coming in, Anne. Thanks so much, Di. I'm excited too. It's just a brilliant book. Um, Tell me about the book, um, the title Massaging Himmler. Now, this is clearly about the Second World War, isn't it? But Tell me, how how did you come to be involved in this project? Well, it has a very interesting genesis and that happened about 25 years ago when I was training to be a masseur and I was living up at St Andrews and doing various courses to further my skill as a masseur and one day I was in an op shop and I found this book called The Magic Touch and I thought, wow, I wonder if that's about massage And so I bought it and I flipped through it and saw that it was about massage and took it home and started reading it. And I just couldn't put it down. It was the most gripping story. And it was about the masseur of Heinrich Himmler, the Reichsführer of the SS. It's extraordinary. Yeah, in Nazi Germany. So who, who was the author of the book and who was Dr Felix Kirsten? Yes, the author of the book was Joseph Kessel and he wrote his book, in French and the book that I held in my hand all those years ago was translated from the French and it told the story of this Finnish or Estonian born naturalized Finn who became Heinrich Himmler's masseur over the course of the Second World War. And um, was he a Nazi? No, No, there's no evidence he was a Nazi, although he was very, very close to Himmler. He was so close to Himmler that he massaged Himmler every day of the war, virtually every day of the war, sometimes in multiple treatments. And um, he had, on on the Heinrich Himmler train that went to the front, uh, Kirsten had his own carriage and his own porter, Um, So there were many people who resented and felt threatened by the influence that he was developing over um, this this most, uh, well, the second-ranking Nazi. And tell me something about um, Dr Kirsten's training. Where had he learnt massage? Well, he was recovering from rheumatism in Estonia and he benefited from massage from the physiotherapists and he... He decided that he'd become a physiotherapist and so he received training there. He moved to Berlin. He had more training. And one day one of his teachers said, you know, there's a guy I'd like you to meet. And it was a Tibetan Chinese man um, and he asked him, this Chinese Tibetan man whose name turned out to be Dr Ko, asked him if he would give him an example of Finnish massage. And so Dr Kirsten, who was very self-confident, felt pretty good about this. He could show off his skills and he could get compliments like he was used to receiving. He gave this massage and Dr Ko burst out with, you are the man that I've been waiting 30 years to find. 
he had apparently received a prophecy in the um, monastery which had said that he would travel and he would find someone who knew nothing and he would teach him everything. And so for him, this was the fulfilment of an amazing prophecy. And he invited Dr Kirsten, Felix Kirsten at that point, to learn from him. And that involved becoming a disciple. And uh, Felix at that point didn't know what that meant. And he also didn't know anything about the meditation on which this style of massage was based. But Dr Coe had an enormous practice, a very successful practice, um, because of this combination of meditation and hands-on skills. And um, now we'll just sort of proceed with the narrative a little and then we'll get to the poetry. Um, so he, Dr Kirsten then becomes a really magnificent masseur. Um, with tremendous ability to remove pain. So tell, That's right. tell me about that. That's right. He, it's, a, it's a massage system that is based on meditation, but it is using the central nervous system and the sympathetic nerve. And um, apparently it was excruciating because it was delving right into the innards of the person. And... Um, he learns from Dr. Coe for, for many years, a number of years. This is in the 20s. And then Dr. Coe announces that he has to return to Tibet to prepare for his death. And he bequeaths Dr. Kirsten his whole um, massage practice. And so this is how finally Dr. Kirsten finds his feet. And he becomes like the society masseur to the, the wealthy and the important in Germany. That's right. He, he continues to, um, to treat patients who can't pay as well. So he has a humanitarian streak in that too. And he follows Dr. Coe in that. And maybe that's what you're referring to as some of the Buddhist teachings that he took on. Um, but yes, he becomes a society masseur and he does massage the rich and the famous. And then somehow he's introduced to Himmler. How did that happen? Well, one of his industrialist friends um, who had benefited himself from Dr Kirsten's massage um, has been talking with his mates, his industrialists, and they're really concerned about the rise of the Nazi party and particularly the socialist agenda because, of course, their whole enterprise will be totally um, pulled apart and destroyed if industry is socialised. So they're trying to think every which way, how can we bring influence to bear so that social socialisation doesn't happen? And um, so he realises that he's got this connection with Dr Kirsten. He also knows that Himmler has excruciating stomach cramps that often force him unconscious. And so they decide, OK, let's ask this guy if he'll massage Himmler and get him not to implement the socialist part of their agenda. I mean, it sounds extraordinary, doesn't it? But I guess people were, were sort of scrabbling to find any means of leverage possible. So what kind of influence did uh, Dr Kirsten have on Himmler through being his masseur and helping him get through his terrible pain? He, he brought much influence to bear on, on Himmler... Um, there was an occasion not long after he started where Himmler again offered him money for his services and, and Kirsten said that he knew, in his memoirs, said that he knew he would have no 
independence left if he accepted money from Himmler, so he refused. And previous to this, another of his industrialist friends had said, look, one of my factory foremen has been arrested. He's a social democrat, he's done nothing. Can you see if you can get Himmler to release him? And Kirsten just put the piece of paper away and thought there's no way I could do that. Um, but on this occasion, when Himmler again offered money, he thought, oh, maybe I, maybe this is the scenario that I could say, no, I don't want money, but this is what I do want. So that's what he said. Um, but Herr Himmler, you know, this, so, this man who's my friend has been arrested unnecessarily. There's no cause for him to be arrested. My, f- my, pa- my fee is that you release this man. And apparently Himmler paused and thought about it and said, because it's you asking, I I will grant it. And that was the beginning. And then tell me about how many people and how many different kinds of people he was able to um, get released through, you know, the influence of being the one getting Himmler out of his suffering. Yes, many different people, but it started small. It started with individuals and then... At some point soon after that, Dr Kirsten um, made contact with the resistance in Holland and so he was working with the resistance and he had many people to help him Um, and one was Rudolf Brandt, who was Himmler's secretary, who through a cautious connection, Kirsten realised would help him. And so one of the things that Brandt did was that he gave him access to Himmler's diplomatic um, correspondence file under the excuse of Kirsten writing to his girlfriends. And so Kirsten was able to conduct much of this correspondence right under Himmler's nose. It's quite extraordinary and, and quite delicious to think of that. Yes, so all the letters from the Dutch resistance are coming straight to Kirsten in the diplomatic bag. Yes, that's right. <laughs> It's amazing. Yes, it is amazing. And and so he built up from individuals to bigger groups of people. And his biggest mechanism, I think, in retrospect, was manipulating Himmler in terms of... He'd, he'd say to Himmler, being a good leader requires many different qualities and strength and decisiveness are one set of values and the other set of values are compassion and being kind And if you want history to think well of you, you need to show that you have compassion. And so he manipulated compassion out of um, Himmler. And um, on many occasions he used variations of that argument and they really played on Himmler's vanity. Himmler really wanted history to think well of him, remarkably. It's extraordinary considering what he did. Yeah. But one of the things that I found from reading the book was that, you know, the the Nazis were not untouched by the suffering that they caused and this actually resulted in their physical pain. Yes, yes, that's also amazing and I found it profoundly reassuring to know that so many of the high-ranking Nazis suffered physically um, profoundly and Kirsten was asked by Himmler as the war progressed to massage many of them And so he came to know quite a few of the high-ranking Nazis and to see this sort of way that their actions played out in their bodies. Yes, well, um, at least the karma um, in this life, not to mention in the next life. 
Um, so now I'm talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book, Massaging Himmler, and we're going to go to some of the poems. Um, it's a poetic uh, narrative. Just tell me, how did you decide on this form? <laughs> That's a big story too. I wanted to be a writer and so I moved up to St Andrews in very primitive surroundings because I thought that might help me not be distracted. And that was a long time ago. Yeah, that was probably 27 years ago. And the writing didn't work. But towards the end of my stay, I uh, went to a writing group and learned that you've just got to allow the rubbish to come out first. And if you stick with it, um, you know, good you'll stuff, can, yeah, you'll get there. So I did that. And um, as I was writing a prose story, I had this notebook on the side because these phrases would come into my head and they were poetic phrases and I really knew very very little about poetry, certainly not contemporary poetry, but I kept these phrases in a notebook and when another couple of years later I moved back to Melbourne, I thought I, I need to check this out and so that's how I got involved in the poetry community. But as, um, as that developed, as I was becoming a poet, I guess, I, it occurred to me, maybe I can tell it in poetry. How amazing would that be, a narrative form of poetry that would be a bit like an epic? Great. Mm. Okay, well, we might just go to some music and then we'll get to the poems. And that was a track from Rivermead by the group Liminality, which is um, a Melbourne band and they're comprised of Jules Vines, Greg Hunt and Kath Connolly. And uh, they use harp, violin, mandolin, cello and keyboards. Um, so you're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins. And today I'm talking to Anne M. Carson about her poetic biography of Himmler's masseur called Massaging Himmler. Um, it's such a dramatic story um, and you've told it in poetry, which I think is a wonderful choice. Um, so let's get to some poems, shall we? Where would you like to begin? I think I'll start with the prologue because that sets the scene rather well and lyrically. It's called Felix Talks About Snakes Beneath the Bed. 
National Socialist Headquarters, Chancellery, Berlin, 1939. Think physiotherapy, massage, clinical white sheet words, washed hands, nails nicely groomed. The bed is made up, white sterilised towels, cotton coverlet, anodyne atmosphere, hushed voices, healing hands, no place for passion, poison. His bed is a divan pressed up against the wall, a dark room with solid wooden furniture. Woolen blankets are brown as boot polish, spartan, masculine. He sleeps here between duties, when he cannot make it home or to his mistress. Or, when his guts are so badly spasmed, it is all he can do to stay conscious, maintain his grip on the reins of power. I don a white treatment coat, but may as well not bother for all the protection it offers. Beneath the bed is a nest of vipers, venomous, virile. They breed so quickly, hundreds of hatchlings, scores of adults in a medusa mess. They writhe and gripe, twine round the bed legs, slither up to me, fangs out, tasting air. You think this is metaphor? That was a brilliant poem and I, I, you totally took me there, you know, and I, it's such a vivid depiction. So Great. where will we go next? I think we might go to the first time that, um, that Dr Kirsten massages Himmler and it's poem 57 and I should say that there are 200 poems so it's about a quarter of the way through. Felix realises this is where Dr Coe has brought him. Chancellery, 10th of March, 1939. The biggest shock is how he looks. I've seen photographs. I thought I knew what to expect. But he is weedy, with a narrow chest, weak chin and hair as dark as soot. His jaw recedes. Shoulders slope, his paunch pokes above his belt. Hardly an exemplar of the virile man. He goes on about racial purity, but cannot see that he himself looks Mongolian. I am businesslike, letting just my skill touch his skin. He writhes, begs for release, a man like any man tormented. Pinched is too small a word for the mess his nerves are in. No energy can pass through that ganglia of knots and burls. As my fingers bite into him, he moans. Hard work for me, agony for him. But gradually, talk improves. His writhing stops, and something approaching peace softens his face. Incredulous, my massage works when so many quacks have failed. And it is a remarkable thing, isn't it, that he had some extra ability that could actually penetrate the, those knots and burrs. It is. It's incredible that he had that skill and, you know, that was a skill he was taught by Dr Coe and that no one else had it. Yeah. I mean, and maybe 
Um, there was a, a transmission that was, you know, an energetic transmission as much as a physical transmission. Yeah, I think in that sort of healing there's bound to be. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, so tell me what where we get to next. I think we might um, flip to poem 77 and this is Felix describing the first time he secures a release. And that's the title of the poem. Chancellery, 26th of August, 1940. I actually pull it off. It happens like this. Two weeks ago, Rochderg, to whom I owe Hartsfolder, pays me a visit. Will I intervene for his factory foreman, a decent, honest man, imprisoned in a concentration camp for the simple sin of being a social democrat? What can I do? Even the thought of approaching the hare with such a request scares me. Rochderg says he knows I have H's ear. Perhaps I can influence him. It would be absurd, dangerous. I take the details and promptly forget about them. Two weeks pass when H calls me for a debilitating attack. Gruelling work. But one by one, with extreme exertion, I manage to undo his knots for now. Because his gut has been so twisted, he is even more grateful than usual. He says that he feels guilty for never paying me. Instinctively, I know I have an edge. If I accept money, I put myself under his control. I tell him payment is impossible for incomplete cures. And besides, I say, I know you are of slender means. It is a principle with me, never to accept payment from poor people. I make rich clients pay for them. Never so effusive. Dear, dear, Herr Kirsten, how can I ever thank you? In a moment of inspiration, I recall Rochterg's request. Pulling the man's details from my wallet, I say, my fee, Reichsfuhrer, is this man's freedom. I see him struggle, but in the end he replies, as it is you asking, of course I agree. He calls Brandt to, the man's re- to effect the man's release. Before Brandt leaves the room, he locks eyes with me, seems to offer a wordless glance of support. I file it away for future reference. Astounded at my leverage, I leave, buoyed, with adrenaline fizzing in my veins. Yes, it's a, it's a remarkable thing that someone who is motivated by goodwill was able to tolerate that insane company. That's so true and he found it very hard, particularly in the confinement of being at the front, whether that was on the train, the Himmler train, or in barracks at the front, which he often had to do. And he just found it absolutely unbearable because he was obliged to eat in the mess so he was surrounded by Nazis and, yeah, it must have been shocking. Yes, it's, um, he must have had incredible courage and, yes. Okay, um, we'll go to the next poem. This is now poem 117, so we've moved along and, and Himmler has been allowing these releases. Felix ruminates. Felix's apartment, Wilmersdorf, Berlin, July 1942. I carry awareness of each prisoner on whose behalf I work, in a small, tight pocket in my mind. As each person is freed from custody, 
The stitches dissolve, the fabric unravels from its pucker. Enormous liberation for them, welcome release for me. Today, Dutch Prime Minister Colin was discharged from jail two years after I started working on his case. Yes, it's an extraordinary... Is there a proper list of the people that he organised the release of? I've collected um, some of them uh, and they appear through the book, but no, there's no one list and um, different books have different names so it's very hard to actually compile that list. And um, at the very end of the war, as everything is falling apart, um, uh, Dr Kirsten arranges a meeting with uh, uh, Massour. Tell me about that. Yes, it's the... um a representative of, of the World Jewish Congress and it's the most remarkable meeting in history to think that Himmler could have been persuaded to meet with Mazur and that Mazur would have felt comfortable or willing to engage in such a meeting. But they put pressure, many people put pressure on Himmler to have this meeting and it's about um, getting Himmler not to pursue the policy that Hitler has ordered to blow up the concentration camps. And they estimate that some 800,000 people remained in the concentration camps. And in line with the Nazi policy of extermination, that would have been the final elimination action. And so it was really crucial to see if leverage could be brought to bear on Himmler so that he wouldn't follow through. And so this meeting with Mazur was an effort to, again, manipulate him by being seen to be, I don't know. Great statesman. <laughs> yeah, great statesman. That's an excellent word for yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So um, he meets with Mazur and Dr Kirsten and, he's pers- and Himmler is persuaded then uh, to issue orders that the the the, mem- the people inside the concentration camps won't be killed and the the camps won't be blown up. Yes, and that food parcels can be sent via the Red Cross and other other um, concessions like that, and also a number of prisoners, extra prisoners, released. Yes, we're coming to the end of the program and we're running out of time. But um, if you'd like, would you like to read that one? Yes, poem 192, Felix Reflects. Gutharzvalder, 21st of April, 1945. Mazur has finally achieved what he came for and what I had hoped for has remarkably come to pass. Like trying to dislodge victims clenched in the determined bony grip of the Grim Reaper himself. How much coercive force we needed to exert too weary for jubilation. Exhausted satisfaction suffuses the group. Approaching 600 hours when we wind things up, dawn spreads its softness and renewal, despite war waged on every side. A new day arrives, a new day which takes us all towards our fates, and that of the poor benighted country we each in our own ways serve. What happens then uh, the, at the end of the war? How does it, how does it unfold? The, the soldiers just leave the camps and the Americans arrive? And... That's right. And that history that we know unfolds and, and the camps weren't blown up. Yes. That came to pass, which is just an absolutely amazing thing. And it was hard in the book to give that the 
you know, the weight that it needed because it's such a significant action that with others he wasn't solo in achieving that, but he initiated it and he persuaded Himmler and Himmler agreed. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful story and, um, and it's also wonderful from the point of view of um, seeing the power of the good, you know. It is and, you know, it's amazing in our time when there are many dark happenings to see resonances of, of this story and I think there's inspiration, certainly there was for me in writing it, in, in seeing and witnessing one man's bravery. It was a remarkable achievement and the courage to be there in the snake pit, I mean, it's extraordinary courage. It is. Okay, now... Um, the book is going to be launched um, on Sunday the 24th of November 2019 at 4pm at um, the Abbotsford Convent Oratory and the Abbotsford Convent is at 1 St Helier's Street in Abbotsford. Yes, um, bookings through Try Booking. And the Try Booking address is www.trybooking.com slash b-e-w-o-x. But if you just type in, if you go to Try Booking and type in massage, Massaging, it'll Himmler. bring it up. Yeah, okay. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program, Anne. Thanks so much, Di. I've been talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book, Massaging Himmler, and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Program. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR. 